0: Amen. You may be seated. And I invite you to have your Bibles out and turn to 1 Timothy, the first chapter. We are starting a new worship series, as Alyssa mentioned, um, uh, living a life that leads. Now last service I said leading a life that lives, either way. Um, I think they both work, but leading, living a life that leads, and, and the idea in this and I 'm going to get to this here in a little bit is that, that each one of us is created by God in a certain way, created by God with certain talents, abilities, um, uh, created by God to lead others to Jesus Christ. And I really do believe that, and I really believe it's possible, and I believe it's possible for you to do it in a way that is not uncomfortable, that doesn't feel weird but a way that you're called to do. And so, uh, as we begin, here is uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. I am giving you these instructions, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies made earlier about you, so that by following them you may fight the good fight, having faith and a good conscience. By rejecting conscience, certain people have suffered shipwreck in the faith. Among them are Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom I have turned over to Satan so that they might, may learn not to blaspheme. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. At uh, Living Word, we have... Um, what we call the five pillar, uh, four pillars, excuse me, four pillars, um, and those are worship, learn, serve, and celebrate, and uh, I, I share those often, I mention those often. Uh, what we've discerned that um, those are the four areas of faith we're going to focus on the most, and I believe if you will focus on those with us and, and go through the journey of, of life with us on, and focusing on those, I believe that you'll be able to, to say a year from now, I am closer in in the image of Christ, closer to God in faith than I was a year ago. And so worship, learn, serve, and celebrate. Those are the, those are the four that we do here. Now, at the, at the last church, um, we uh, uh, used five instead of four. We were overachievers there. Um, and those five were grace, growth, give, gift, go. Because I like alliteration. And I actually, all I did was I took the, uh, the United Methodist, uh, when you join the Methodist Church, we say, will you support this church with your prayers, your presence, your gifts, your service, and your witness? And I alliterated those. Prayers, presence, gifts, service, and witness is grace go, th- give, gift, go. At the church before that, it was love, learn, lead, live. Guess who came up with Those. And then the church before that, uh, in Macon, Missouri, um, uh, we had uh, five, and they were the identical five to, if any of you ever read the book, Purpose Driven Life, there was a book before that called Purpose Driven Church, and uh, the whole idea was the same, that there were five things that they focused on. I can't recall what those were off the top of my head, but, but what I learned in, in studying some of this stuff uh, and studying it with others is that it's not so important which of those you focus on, what is important is that you focus on them, that you choose to be diligent in your, in your faith life by some form of practice that you're going to do over and over again. And so the, the four we do is uh, worship, learn, serve, and celebrate. But when I was in Kansas City and we had love, learn, lead, live, um, I would share those and people would go, love, I get that, okay, you know, love, your, love God, love your neighbor, um, uh, learn, I get that. Um, uh, but this lead thing, Dave, I'm not a leader. I, I, I'm just not a leader. That's not who I am. Maybe others are called to lead, but I'm not a leader. And I beg to differ. I think every one of us is called to lead just in different ways. Every one of us is called to live a life that makes it possible that someone will look at us and say, you know, you are so completely different from other people. You live so countercultural. You're so much, I don't know, like Jesus. I want to know what that's about. I love St. Francis of Assisi said, uh, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. Now, I want to be cautious about that because oftentimes you hear it misquoted. Oftentimes you hear it, preach the gospel at all times if necessary, use words. It's not what he said. He said when necessary. So what he said was, live your life like you're following Jesus Christ to the point that somebody's going to ask, then you have to give a response. Then you're gonna have to use your words. When necessary, use words. And then I hear, Dave, I'm just not a leader. I'm just not called to that. It's just not who I am. Just not what I'm supposed to do. But you are. Really. But before we can do that, we got to be prepared for it. We got to be working toward it. We got to be moving ourselves in that direction. And one of the ways that we do that, I, I, um, I, there's a, a phrase that people use in Christian faith, and maybe you use that in, in places outside of the faith, but you talk about pouring your life into others or pouring yourself into others' lives. In other words, um, if it's in business, you call it mentoring, right? Do you have any of you in business that have an intentional mentoring program? Um, If you're in a a union, for instance, you might have apprentices and journeymen. It's it's a mentoring process. Learn before we set you free to do it on your own. In the Christian faith, we have a mentoring process, and sometimes it's called pouring into you. And I, I, I love that imagery. I love the idea of it because I believe that, that God first poured into us. As I, as I listen, as I read about uh, Jesus and, and, and Jesus calls the first disciples and, and uh, uh, Peter, James, and John were the first, we understand. And uh, uh, Peter goes up, I mean, Jesus goes up to them and he says, hey, Peter, James, John, um, let me tell you about Jesus and that I'm leaving. He doesn't do that. Let me talk to you about salvation, and then I'm out of here. He doesn't do that. He says, let me pour into you. Follow me, he says. Let me pour into you. Let me me offer you myself. For three years, they're together. For three years, Jesus pours into them. Now, one of them, John, we happen to know that one of John's followers was a guy by the name of Ignatius. And John poured into Ignatius. And you can still read some of the stuff that Ignatius wrote. Google it. And then another one was Polycarp, who was Ignatius' follower. Polycarp's a funny name, sounds like many fish. I just always get a laugh out of it. So Jesus pours into John, John pours into Ignatius, Ignatius pours into Polycarp. It was the way of faith. So who's pouring into you? I think it's important for for people of faith to to think about that, to envision that possibility that there is somebody that's farther ahead of me in faith that I ought to be paying attention to. And there's somebody behind me in faith that I ought to be paying attention to. And by the way, if you're sitting here thinking, oh, no, no, I'm the, I'm the, I'm the, the, at the very, I'm, I'm, I'm like the first in faith, and everybody else is way out ahead of me. We had a first-time visitor this morning at the other service. She and her two children had never been in a church. She might be a little far behind you. And who's going to pour into her life and the lives of her children? How magnificent is that? I I think that um, part of the way of, I I tried to do that a little bit in the prayer time, and I know that made you uncomfortable, because you lifted your hands in in church, and that just, I bug you about this all the time, because I just think it's so important that that we be able to surrender ourselves to God in worship. You know what the problem is? How many of you um, are of uh, German descent, and the rest of you are Dutch? That's our problem, because we lift our hands in worship. But the, the, the image of, of, of uh, worship, and I, I love the, there there's several places in the Bible where it talks about lifting holy hands. And, and uh, um, as we lift up our hands, the image is that we become like a cup for God to fill up. So many times in worship, we, we think of ourselves, we can't help it. We're, we're conditioned this way. We're consumers of worship. Let me see if I can get anything out of church today. That's a consumer mindset. And we bring that to church. We can't help it. It's part of who we are. It's like, let me see what I can get out of Deerberg's today. But what if you entered in worship and said, let me see what I can give to the Lord today. Can I offer myself, surrender myself fully to him and then have the experience of God pouring himself fully into you? You know, the imagery of, of, of God pouring is... is it's imaged in, in like the baptismal. And I, I talk about, uh, when baptized, I baptize, I talk about the water. The water is a gift from God. Without water, we cannot live. And through the waters of our baptism, as God pours out himself into our lives, in the waters of baptism, we enter into the life that is eternal life. And then in the communion, we talk about the blood that God shared on the cross for us, that Jesus Christ dies for our sake, that the the image is that this is the blood of Christ poured out for you. You want to know what you get out of worship. In the water of baptism, you get a new family. You become a brother or sister of Christ, son or a daughter of God. And in the communion, you celebrate what Christ has done in his shedding of the blood, the pouring out of himself into you. And we are in, in return called to pour ourselves out into others. To offer ourselves fully to another as somebody else offers themselves fully to us. Who are you pouring into? And then you still say, but I'm not, I don't know that I'm called to lead. What if I get it wrong? That's often the response that I hear. What if I get it wrong? Well, first of all, let me be clear. It's not your job to save anybody. God does the saving. It's your job just to make the introduction. And you do that by living your life in the way God created you and called you. And there may come a time that somebody might ask you a question. And then what if you learn to get it right? What if you learn what the answer might be? Leadership is one of those things that I, I think that we're all called to. We're all called to some form of leadership. I've, uh, I, I've heard it said that, that management is getting people to go where you want them to go. Leadership is getting people to go where they want to go. Rosalind Carter put it this way, a leader takes people where they want to go, a great leader takes people where they don't necessarily want to go, but ought to be. And I would, I would take that phrase of hers and say, in the case of salvation, leading a person to Jesus Christ may not be where they thought they wanted to go, but ultimately it's exactly where they long to be. Well, Mike Slaughter is an author, pastor, uh, who wrote a book that, uh, the first line of the book was, um, all leadership begins with self-leadership. All leadership begins with self-leadership. In other words, how can you lead someone to Jesus Christ if you're not there already? If you're not living there regularly? And so as we look at that scripture today, um, Paul has, has poured his life into a young man named Timothy and, and, and has, has helped Timothy grow in the faith. Timothy was already a person of faith when he met him and Paul helps him grow in the faith and then he travels with Paul and Paul pours into this young man. And there comes a time where, where Paul says, you know what, we're going to do far more work, far better work if you go and, and I'm going to send you to another church. He sends them to Ephesus. Paul had already been there. He wrote the book of Ephesians to those people in Ephesus. Uh, so he says, I'm going to send you to Ephesus to be with those people. There's trouble there. The church is a little bit divided. You need to go there and help them get things straightened out. And we, we think that Paul might be in Philippi at the time he writes this letter. It's not clear. It's not real evident. But, but it, what is clear is that Paul's not with Timothy when he writes this letter. Why else would you write the letter? He gives, sends the letter to Timothy. And, and he says in the scripture, Timothy, my child... Timothy, my child. See, he's, he's having this sort of relationship with Timothy that, that I'm going to pour into you like I would pour into, a, like a father would pour into a son or a mother to a daughter. I'm going to pour into you like a parent so that you can pour into others. Timothy, my child, he says. And then he goes on to, to talk about, about having faith and a good conscience. And I think that's that internal part I'm talking about. We we, we can't lead someone unless we're self-led, unless we're allowing ourselves to be where God wants us to be, to be who God wants us to be, having faith and a good conscience. And the danger of this is that it's possible that if you don't have faith and a good conscience, you'll end up shipwrecked. In faith, that's what Paul says. He talks about being shipwrecked in faith. I remember uh, 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 the pastor that uh, did my brother's wedding um, ended up being unfaithful to his wife, and my brother was like, "Are we actually still married?" <laughs> I don't know why that question came up, but that was the question he had. I mean, is this this person became shipwrecked in faith? And imagine all the people that 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 were following. His ministry and thinking that that see what happens, and then the people that you're pouring into, they're shipwrecked as well. They're drowning with you. And so, so Paul cautions, and and he and he says to uh, uh, to Timothy, he says, um, you know, this this first part is faith. He's saying trust in Christ. Make sure that your faith is strong. Make sure that you're doing the interior stuff you need to do. You're worshiping regularly. You're, you're praying regularly. You're keeping uh, uh, tight with the scriptures. You're, you're reading the word of God. Um, you're, you're allowing, you're d- doing your devotions, whatever it is. You're doing the things that continually and constantly remind you that Christ died for your sake and has a call on your life. Not only that, there's a, there's a promise that comes with that and that God will never leave you nor forsake you. Live into that trust, live into that promise, live into that faith. And then there's the good conscience part. And that's the part that gets us tripped up and that's the part that, 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 that people will, um, you know, that's the part where Christians sometimes are called hypocrites. Where, where people challenge you in your faith when you don't seem to live it on a regular basis. And so let's talk about the conscience for a minute, and and the function of the conscience is is to be a guide and a judge. If you're old enough, you'll remember Jiminy Cricket, right, with Pinocchio, remember, let your conscience be your guide. It's a good song. I'm that old. Look it up. I bet it's on YouTube. Jiminy Cricket was that was that was that cricket on Pinocchio's shoulder that 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 was his conscience. It was the reminder, the constant reminder. But but sometimes our conscience gets assailed. Sometimes it it runs aground. So so first of all, we seek to avoid those things that that would run our conscience aground. And and, um, I I love the, uh, so Timothy is in, Ephesus, right? And Paul has written this letter to the people in Ephesus. And obviously they kept it around and kept reading it and rereading it. And that's how we have it today. If they didn't, it it would have disappeared. And I'm sure there was hundreds of letters that that Paul and others wrote that we don't have today, but we have this one. And that one to the Ephesians in Ephesians uh, 6, 13 to 17, he says, this this is how you protect your conscience, protect yourself from making those mistakes. He says, therefore, take up Up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm. Stand, therefore, and fasten the belt of truth around your waist. Put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all these, take the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. He says, take truth and righteousness, readiness, faith, salvation, the word of God. These are the things that protect your conscience from being wounded. These are the things that protect you as you are preparing to pour into the lives of others. These are the things that will protect you from the mistakes that you might make. And so avoid temptation. And how do you avoid temptation? Well, one of those ways is prayer, constant prayer. You know, if you go from uh, what I just read um, in First Timothy and go to 2 Timothy, it begins, 2 Timothy 2 begins with, first of all then, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone. That you pray for everyone. Pray for those that you love and those that don't love you so much. Pray for everyone. And pray for yourself. I think that, I think that if you are praying for the faith of another person, if you are praying for someone else to grow in their faith, you're thinking, how can I be that example? How can, I, how can I be sure that I live my life in a way that I don't have to apologize? How can I avoid that? How do I flee from that t- temptation? In James 4.7, it says, Submit yourselves therefore to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. So we we seek to uh, create an environment within ourselves that we're not giving in to temptation. But sometimes the arrow gets through. Sometimes the conscience gets wounded. Sometimes we find ourselves taken down. And then what? Where do we go with that? Well, there's a reason why during uh, uh, the prayers that I offer uh, on, on Sundays that, that I lead us in, a, in some amount of confession. If you go into the, uh, the earlier service, the traditional service, we have a prayer of confession time. Confession is important. Now, I think there's, there's multiple ways to think about confession. You know, if you're Roman Catholic, you, you, you go to the confessional and you say, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. It's been so many days since my last confession, whatever. Um, I, I've never been there, so I just take it for granted. But, you know, um, uh, I had a priest tell me one time, and I've held on to this, um, tell me one time that that the point of that confession is is twofold. One, the priest stands in in the, the place of God to give you absolution for what you've done wrong. But the priest also stands as a member of the community that you offended in your sin. And you need to have that forgiveness as well. It's not just love God, it's also love your neighbor. And I just love that image of that. And, and so confession is important, but, but I know we're in a, in a time in a society where we just don't confess out loud to each other. I, I get that. You know, the, the times that, that I can say that my faith was growing the strongest and fastest was whenever I was in a small group, especially with a group of people that met regularly and I could trust and trust with a deep trust. And as, as I met with those people, um, sometimes three, four, five, I, there would be a time where, where I could say, um, you know, here's what I'm struggling with the most. Here are the things that, that I feel are getting in between me and the image of Christ that I'm called to. And would you pray for me? And it's not all about what you have done, but rather it's all about what can be. And I've been wrestling with that same idea right there uh, um, with, with my understanding of God. And, and, and uh, we preachers do this. We think on these things all the time. And, and so I've been thinking on that whole image of, of it's, it's not so much what you have done, but what you could be. In in the book of Exodus, um, uh, Moses is there at the burning bush, and from the burning bush he hears the voice of God, and and God says, "Hey, I'm going to send you to the Hebrews and and in, in Egypt, and you're going to rescue them. You're going to take them out of Egypt, and, and take them to where I, I need you to lead them." And 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 Moses says, "Um, okay." Well, he says no at first, uh, a couple times, and, and then he says, "Okay," a little arm twisting there, um, and uh, and he says, um, he says, "Okay," but. Who do I say is sending me? And God's response is, I am. That apparently wasn't real helpful to Moses. So God makes it clear. I am the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Joseph. In other words, I am the God who has been faithful in the past. And my intent is to be faithful in the future. But I love that that phrase, I am, Yahweh is the Hebrew for it. Because it's hard to translate. It could be translated, I will be who I will be. God gets to decide who God is. But in that understanding of I will be who I will be, there is a future orientation to it. You see, God says, I am the God of the past, but I will be the God of the future. I will take you to the promised land. That's what he's promising the Hebrews, but I believe that's what he promises us as well. I am the God who has been faithful to you in the past. And I am and I will be the God who will be faithful in your future, even when you mess up. And so when I think of that in the context of confession, I I think about the idea that that, um, so many of us, and, and maybe you're one of them, so many of us are so hung up on something from the past that we can't let it go, either something that we did or something that was done to us And we can't let it go. We can't surrender it. We can't release it. And then I think of Lion King. Naturally, right? Because there's that brilliant little character named Rafiki. Remember, Rafiki is the shaman. And what was the Lion King's name? Simba. Simba, that was a dad, wasn't it? Mufasa. Okay, so... Simba is dwelling on the fact that he thinks he had something to do with the death of Mufasa, right? And he's, and he's run away and he's ashamed and he can't live with it and he'd rather just ignore everything that, that he's called to be. And at one point, he's, he's just pouring this out to Rafiki and he says, this is why I can't go back and Rafiki smacks him up and top of the head with a stick. And he goes, what was that? And he goes, don't worry about it, it's in the past. And while I think that our sins and our shortcomings have deep ramifications in the cross of Jesus Christ, and because there's an empty tomb, God is the God of our future, not dwelling on our past. Don't worry about it. It's in the past. And if you come to God and say, God, I'm so sorry, take this away. God will say, I am and will be your God in the future. If you're going to pour into someone's life, and I think we're all called to, first allow God to pour into you and be diligent toward it. If you're going to lead someone, self-lead first. But don't wait too long. Somebody's waiting on you. Amen? And amen.